Hello, guys, and welcome back to another episode of Crooked Illness. If you are new here, my name is Paris Brinkevich, and I am the creator and host of the Crooked Illness podcast, where we get into all things health-related. The primary focus of the podcast within the umbrella of health-related topics is mental health and mindset. I began Crooked Illness as a way to motivate, inspire, empower, and educate people on these interesting topics. My background and passion for starting Crooked Illness stems from the field of psychology. After completing both my BA in psychology and MBA in healthcare administration, my passion for mental health only continued to grow. As a result of this, I decided to start Crooked Illness to bring more awareness, tips, and conversations to the table about these topics. I offer my perspective on the work I've done and how it inspired me to begin this podcast. Along with this perspective, I also speak about my personal experience with mental health and how I use those experiences to help educate, inspire, and motivate others. I really enjoy doing interviews and connecting with people who also love to discuss and learn more about mental health. If you would like to learn more, become a guest, or connect, feel free to reach out to me by shooting me a message on Instagram, LinkedIn, Facebook, or to my email of crookedillness at gmail.com. Hello, you guys. I hope that you are all having a good day or a good night or whatever time it is when you are listening to this. But I just wanted to pop in here real quick before the episode starts and let you guys know why I decided to do this episode today and why I decided to have this conversation that I'm, I'm having with my guest today, who you guys will be introduced to in just a moment. So the title of this episode, TED Talks, to save lives is about how my guest has given right now five TED Talks, soon to be eight, but has given five. And all of the TED Talks that he has done are on topics on related to mental health, suicide prevention, the work that he's done as a coach, and chronic suicidal ideation, which we're going to be getting into in this episode, what it is, what it means, what it looks like, and my guest's experience with this. And the reason I really wanted to record this episode and put this episode out there into the universe for you guys to check out is because I think it is so awesome and so important what my guest has done and is doing with the work he, he has done by giving these talks because talking about these topics like suicide and how that's related to his life, his experience with being suicidal, and what he has learned from getting on these stages, giving these talks, and really being able to change somebody's life in the audience who connects with him, feels some kind of a sense of realization of something through the message he's sharing. And I just think it's really awesome and really important because he has a really interesting career actually. So I'll talk to you guys about that also in a moment. I will get into that in the episode, so I'm not going to share too much here. Just wanted to describe a little bit about what we are getting into with this, with this topic, topic of conversation and why I think it's important because I have not talked, I haven't had an episode that's dedicated to suicide, suicide prevention specifically. So this is that episode and he is going to be sharing his experience with that along with what, it, what it's been like bringing that out into the world in the way that he did by going on stage and sharing that in front of people and never having done that before. 
you know, having nobody, no, nobody knew that he was suicidal, that he was like that. Nobody knew. So what, what that experience was like for him. And it's a very interesting conversation and I hope that you guys enjoy it. I hope that you enjoy it as much as I enjoyed putting it together for you guys. And as always, have a great, great rest of your day, guys. Hello, guys, and welcome back to a brand new episode of Crooked Illness. I am excited about this episode right here because my guest, Frank King, is joining me to talk about the five TED Talks he gave on mental health, the work he is doing for suicide prevention, and more. Frank King is a TED Talk coach, a former writer for The Tonight Show for 20 years, and a speaker and stand-up comic who has worked with Jerry Seinfeld, Adam Sandler, Jay Leno, and Ellen DeGeneres. So without further ado, welcome Frank to the podcast. What is it? A do? Without further ado. Further ado, Frank, you are here. That is correct. <laughs> welcome. I think it was going to happen, but you know. I know. We got it. We got it. We got it working. We are here and we are ready to dive into this today. So I'm excited to hear from hear from you. I want I want to get into this. So tell me a little bit about yourself before we dive right in. I uh, started comedy in fourth grade, told a joke. Everybody laughed. Students, teacher was hysterical. I thought I'm going to be a stand-up comedian. And it started right there. Yep. And then 12th grade, there was a talent show. Nobody had ever done stand-up before. I did stand-up and I won. I was going to be a comedian at that point, but my mama forced me to go to school. Oh. Yep, UNC Chapel Hill. I said, my mom will be a comedian. She goes, son, you're going to college first. I don't care what you do when you get done. You can be a goat herder, but you're going to be a goat herder with a college degree. <laughs> so then I, uh, my, my high school and college sweetheart and I moved with the insurance company I was working for out of college to San Diego. There's a branch, still is, of the comedy store, the one, the famous one up on Sunset in Los Angeles. It opened mic night. About halfway through my five minutes, I thought, I'm home. I'm going to do this for a living. I have no idea how, <laughs> but I am. A year later, I asked my girlfriend uh, if she wanted to come along on the road just for the ride. Because I was going to be a professional stand-up comedian. and figured she'd say, hell no. She said, yeah. So we put everything we couldn't fit into my tiny little Dodge Colt in storage, gave up our apartment, our jobs, and hit the road for 2,629 nights in a row nonstop. Wow. That's, that's amazing. Cause I know, remember we talked before you were talking to me about the tonight show. Cause you also did, you also worked on that for 20 years. You did stand up com comedy for 34, right? 34. And you're still doing it. Yep. Still doing it. If anybody still wants it and they're willing to pay for it, I'm happy to do it. Still going. Wow. So how did you get into, um, writing for the tonight show? Well, Jay was the permanent guest host for Johnny back in the late eighties. And Johnny would say on a Friday night, listen, I'm going to take off next week. We've met Jay had four nights to cover 18 jokes and monologues. We started hiring comics who were on the road as contract labor. Signed a contract form, submit 12, 24 jokes a day. And I was probably getting too long a week in the monologue. And then when he got the show for real, they cut loose most of the contract labor, but they kept me on a couple of the guys. So we wrote until he left the show. Wow. That's awesome. And I remember you, you know, talking about doing that, writing for 20 years and how you transition over into doing what you do now, which is TED Talks, TED Talks and coaching for TED Talks. So how did you get introduced to the idea of doing a TED Talk on mental health? Well, after the recession started in 2007 or eight, 
speaking business, corporate comedy business, dropped off 80% overnight. We lost everything in Chapter 7 bankruptcy, and that's when I learned what the barrel of my gun tasted like. Mm. Uh, spoiler alert, I did not pull the trigger. Uh, a friend of mine came up to me after a keynote. He'd never heard me say that, that I didn't pull the trigger. And he said, hey, man, how come you didn't pull the trigger? Hey, man, how come you're sounding so disappointed? Um, what it was was that when uh, the recession was over, they started booking speakers again. The people who've been booking me as a comedian said, Frank, we love you. We can't pay you that kind of money just to be funny. You got to teach us something. So I looked at my family history of generational depression and suicide, my close call, got some you know, training in suicide prevention. And in 2014, did my first TEDx talk in an effort to rebrand from a funny speaker to a speaker who was simply funny. Wow. Because I remember you, you were telling me about that when you got on stage and you were talking about that and you said people were shocked to hear because they had no idea that you, they're like, they had no idea that you were suicidal, that you, you know, that was in your family and your family history. And, you know, what was that? What was that like? Well, I was, I was 56 years old and nobody knew my family, my friends, my wife, nobody knew I was depressed and suicidal. Um, but I came out on stage at that TEDx talk and um, the YouTube video went up about a month later. I told my wife before you hit play, I gotta tell you about half a dozen things you don't know about me. That I don't want I don't want you to learn watching the, the TEDx. So and then from that TEDx, I got phone calls for two more. They said, Do you have any more mental health topics? Oh yeah. And then I auditioned for actually four more. I got them all. Uh, two of them I could do, the other two I couldn't do because I had full fee speaking gigs. I gotta eat. So uh, <laughs> I was thinking the other day, I've been turned down, I've turned down more TED talks than most people have. Wow. Broke my heart. Uh, one was in LA, one was in Sun Valley in a gorgeous theater, but I just couldn't, I was working a cruise. I couldn't physically get there and get back. So. Yeah. Wow. So what was that like? Cause I know you said when you got on stage to do your first one in 2014, where you talked about being suicidal and like your family history and everything, what was that like when you're, cause I know you said your wife didn't even know she nope. didn't even know. So what, what was her response? Well, she got a little choked up. Um, and I think if you have mental illness, you should share that with your family, friends, people you trust when you're ready, because, you know, things melt down. It's nice to have people around who understand what you're going through. They're not going to be judgmental. They're not going to, as they say in the mental health business, should all over you. You should do this and you should do that. And you should try fish oil. So, and now it's, it's, it, it's good for the marriage because she knows if I get a little moody, that it's not her fault. Mm. I, I tell her, I told her today, because I was, I was having a really bad day, I'm having a really bad day today. So I sent her a text, she asked me how I was doing, I said, I'm cycling down. So that way she didn't get blindsided when she gets home by some angry guy who's depressed, you know? Yeah. <laughs> and one of my triggers is disappointing her. So she's made kind of a joke out of it, which is very, is actually helpful because I'll do something stupid. And I'll say, honey, are you mad? She goes, no, I'm not mad. <laughs> I'm disappointed. Aww. <laughs> it, it, you know, if you, if you let other people in, then they're there to help you and understand. And, and um, you know, and my cycle lasts about three days. I'll, I'll be headed down for about a day. Tomorrow I'll flatten out. Then the next day I'll be on my way back up. Just, just, my, just my cycle. Uh, major depression disorder. Last anywhere from two days to two weeks and recurs like a flat spot on a wheel. It just keeps coming back up every so often. Yeah, because I a day. <laughs> yeah, because I remember you telling me. So in your in your family, you said your mom and grand both mom and grandma had 
major depressive disorder? What what did they have? And Actually, my grandmother died by suicide. My mother found her. Uh, my great aunt died by suicide. My mother and I found her. I was four years old. I screamed for wow. And I believe my mother was uh, living with depression. Uh, she didn't kill herself quickly. She did it over time with cigarettes and alcohol. Mm. So, yes, yeah, it was socially acceptable suicide. You know? Yeah. Hey, I look. love that. I love that you bring up that point, you know, when you talked about you, when you told your wife what was going on before she saw the video of how, you know, important it is to open up when you're ready to, to people close to you, like your friends, family, whoever, when you're ready to do that. And another thing that you brought up last time that I thought was really interesting. We talked last time about chronic suicidal ideation. Can you tell me what this is and what your experience speaking about this has been like? Yeah, because I have major depressive disorder, which is pretty garden variety depression. A lot of people have. Uh, chronic suicidal ideation is far more rare. I've met clinicians who have no idea what I'm talking about. It's not the DSM, you know, that diagnostic. Mm -hmm, yeah. If it doesn't show up in there, it doesn't, doesn't exist. Um, what it is is for people like me, and for me and people like me in my tribe, the option of suicide is always on the menu as a solution for problems large and small. And the story I tell on stage is small. My car broke down a couple of years ago. I had three thoughts unbidden. Get it fixed, buy a new one, and I could just kill myself. That's chronic suicidal ideation. Well, every every keynote I've given, every training I've done, except for one since 2014, somebody in the audience has that. And sometimes more than one somebody. And they have no idea it has a name. They think they're just some kind of freak, all alone. I did a college. Young woman came up afterwards. She goes, uh, thank you for your keynote. I said, you're welcome. She said, you made me weep. How did I make you weep? She said, well, you know your story about your car, get it fixed, buy a new one, just kill yourself. I've been having those thoughts all my life. I just thought I was some kind of freak. I didn't know it had a name. I thought I was all alone. And when I heard you say that out loud, I wept. Wow. Because I remember, I remember you telling me that story. You know, after she came up to you after you gave your talk and you talked about what chronic suicidal ideation is. And you remember you sharing with me that many people don't even know what that is. They don't know how to, they, they might feel that way, but they don't know it's a thing. They don't know it's real. They don't know it has a name. And, you know, even like you mentioned, you know, there's different doctors out there who might not even, even know about it. And I think that's great that, you know, you got up there and you share that you, you experience that and you go through that and having these people in the audience sit, sit there and one of them listening to you can say, wow, you know, now I'm not this like weird person who, you know, doesn't, can't talk about this and can't put it into words and doesn't yep. really know what it is or how to describe it. And I think that's awesome that, you know, that you got up there and you shared that. And, and, and obviously, cause it's very difficult. I can imagine to get up on stage and, t and tell a room full of people about, you know, that you have experienced chronic suicidal ideation, you've been suicidal and different things like that. And just to to really be able to bring that to a room of people and have someone connect with you and say, thank you for doing that. Because now I feel like they have some kind of a either connection to you or an understanding, a better understanding of their own thing. Well, and by the way, people ask me, does telling your story and all that trigger you? No, it has the opposite effect. Very therapeutic. Um, I get emotional and I tell the story. If people get emotional, I make them laugh because I'm a comedian. So you kind of think, yeah. but no, it's very therapeutic for me because I mean, it's possible that these folks that have come up, I've steered them just far enough off the path of suicide that they'll live a normal life. One day it hit me. 
uh, I'm sort of like George Bailey and It's a Wonderful Life in that I've been showing what these people's lives might be like if I weren't there to speak and let them know they're not alone. And my second thought was, well, I can't kill myself because if I did, I'd take all those people with me. Mm -hmm. So I'm stuck. Yeah. Okay. So tell, tell me about, so I know when you get up on stages and you're speaking, what you, we talked about vulnerability last time and you brought up something about the power in being vulnerable and what that, what that's done for you. So can you tell me, you know, what have you learned about vulnerability when it comes to going on stage and telling your story about being suicidal? Well, that's my superpower. Apparently I was reading Brene Brown's book on vulnerability. And about halfway through, I thought, oh, dear God, that's my superpower. Because, <laughs> you know, to see a man get up and talk about things, you know, that matter, about emotions, about being mentally ill, um, it just doesn't happen very often because guys, especially like me, who are raised in the South, big boys don't cry. They don't talk about those things. Mm -hmm. Whether it's, it's depression or, you know, or a colonoscopy or a PSA test or prostate cancer. Guys just don't, you know, that's not a guy thing. We pull ourselves up by our bootstraps. So for people to see me up on stage being vulnerable, I think it, it gives them permission to give voice to their feelings and experiences surrounding you know, mental illness and thoughts of suicide without recrimination. I had a young woman I reached out to her on Twitter and to connect, and we connected, and then I got a DM from her, and she goes, I can't believe it's you. <laughs> she goes, yeah, I was, I was, last fall was the worst you know, time in my life, for whatever reason. I was, you know, I was, I was close to, to ending my life. I just happened to come across your TEDx talk and thought, well, gosh, if he can make it, maybe I can make it. And so, of course, she did. And she, at the end of the DM, said, listen, I just want to thank you for telling your story, for being vulnerable, for getting up there and burying your soul on stage. It, it probably saved my life. So oh. that's the thing about TEDx talks is in speaking, you'll never, probably never know all the people. I hope all the people that <laughs> I perhaps steered this far enough off the path, you know, to suicide that they did live or will live a normal life. So. Yeah. And I think that's awesome that you have, that you decided to do that and realize the power in being vulnerable, because I know you mentioned, you know, the book, the Brene Brown book you were reading and how, you know, when you're reading that book, you really start to understand, you know, this is, it's important to be this way. And also I like how you, brought up that point, you know, like a lot of the times it is, it isn't normal for most men to sit there and talk about, you know, the, like hard stuff and difficult things that are like, no one really, you don't really hear about that as much. So I feel like, you know, for someone to see you on stage doing that definitely, I think helps them be able to open up more and say, okay, if this guy's out here, you know, telling his story and, and talking about such like personal things to him in his life, then maybe I can open up to somebody else or open up to you. And then they, they send you messages and, you know, yeah. come up to you and thank you for sharing the stuff that you did because, you know, at the end of the, that talk that you gave something that you said resonated with them and stuck with them to the point that made them realize that they can do something they, they thought they couldn't do before. Yeah, I did a general convention two years ago, January, and I made a little, little mini keynote, told the story about my chronic suicidal ideation about the car. And everybody's leaving the room. I'm packing my bag up front, and there's a woman coming toward me, and I can see she's crying. And when she gets up to me, she's weeping so hard she can't speak. So I took a chance, and I said, you've got chronic suicidal ideation. She nodded. I said, you didn't know I had a name. You thought you were some kind of freak. Nod. 
So you have a therapist back home? No. I said, we'll do this. When you get back home, make an appointment. Tell the therapist everything you learned. And for God's sake, don't tell them you learned it from a comedian. Tell them you Google. <laughs> and I don't want them to take you seriously. And I got an email from them the next week that said, you know, I think I was at the dental conference simply to meet you. You've changed my life. And I can't say that about a lot of people. Wow. That's amazing. Like, because I remember you telling me about her coming up to you as too, and what the reaction that you get from people after you're done talking about this stuff, because, you know, it really, it strikes a chord in them some, somehow or some way. And, you know, I wanted to ask you, you know, what, of, out of all the, the talks that you've given and the, the speeches that you've done on this stuff, what has been for you the biggest lesson that you've learned throughout your entire career when it comes to mental health related issues and topics? Well, what I learned is this, I learned this early on when I was preparing for my first TEDx, that in the United States, at least last year, one person died of suicide every 11 minutes, but nobody talks about it. They just, as my mother would say, it's, it's just not something you talk about in polite company. Mm -hmm. However, if you bring it up and you mention the words depression and suicide, almost everybody has a story. I've heard the most amazing thing from people, some of whom I've just met. It's like they've been waiting for somebody to, to say those words out loud to give them permission. I was on a cruise ship working and I was in the Lido buffet one morning, couldn't find a seat at a table for two, a woman sitting by herself. I point at the seat, she nods, I said. She looks up, she goes, hey, are you the comedian? I said, hey, do you enjoy the comedy show? She goes, I did. said, then I'm the comedian. She goes, what would you have said if I told you I hated it? Uh, they tell me I look a lot like it. She said, is cruise comedy all you do? I get that question all the time. I said, no, I'm a public speaker. And if you don't mind me bragging, I just mailed down my first TED Talk. She goes, I love the TED Talk. What's the topic? Well, I had this conversation many times by that point and figured I knew what was coming. So I said to her, depression and suicide, and started to count down in my head. Three, two, one. She goes, I tried to kill myself twice. We've just met. Yeah. First time in college, kind of half-hearted, not a big deal. Second time, far more serious, right? I graduated college. I had graduated medical school. I had the knowledge, had the equipment, had the IV started in my ankle. Had the suicide cocktail in one hand, the syringe in the other, getting ready to load it up, phone ring. She's thinking, do I pick it up? I better, might be somebody would get worried, come over, interrupt. Picks it up, 13-year-old son. She says, I don't know if you heard anything in my voice or had a premonition, but he said, mom, don't do anything. So I didn't, she said. I didn't give up on the idea of suicide, but I decided not to do it that day because I thought he would feel guilty. Wasn't there something he could do or say to stop my suicide? Well, the good news wow. is there are things you can do, there are things you can say. I said to her, how old is he now? She said, he's 21. I said, did you know a phone call saved your life? And this became the theme of my TED talk. She goes, no, how do you start that conversation? So that's what people pay me to do. My clients often tell me when I arrive, hey, look, we just brought you in here, start the conversation on suicide. I talked to a woman I worked for in January, big manufacturing plant in Iowa. Had two shifts. It was a safety, they have a safety day every year. They decided mm -hmm. this year was going to be on mental health suicide prevention. So I came in, I did a keynote for each ship. We were talking, it's been three weeks ago now, I guess, because you have no idea the impact you've had. She said, they have two nurses on staff, that's so many people they have, you know, in, in the plant. And she goes, guys came in after you left, it's 90% of them. A couple of guys, a couple of three guys came in after you left and told the nurses, you know, they were struggling with mental 
illness issues, you know, and, and mentioned my name as, as, you know, the reason they were in there um, seeking help from the uh, company. So you never can tell. Wow. And I think that's amazing that, you know, when you bring that stuff up, it, you are right. It does bring that out in people where they feel like they can talk about it, you know, cause I feel like for the longest time, you know, I really agree with you, you know, especially, you know, I know people who would say, you know, like you said, you don't talk about that. You know, we don't get into this. We don't, you know, don't, if someone does bring it up, it's like, no, we don't next. Like we change the subject, something else. We can't get into this. But I feel like for you, like when you gave that example of you were at the bar and you met that woman at the bar and you were talking about this and you said your TED talk was on depression and suicide, that's when she just, she shared with you, she tried to end her life twice. And, and for, you know, for some reason you're sitting there like, this is a complete stranger. We don't know each other. We just met. We literally just met, said a few words to each other, and now you're comfortable enough to say that to me. And you're right, because you, when, you, when you put that out there and you bring it up like that, and you really talk about, you know, this is what you're doing with the TED Talks and the topics that you're covering, I feel like it definitely does bring like a sense of making people more comfortable telling you their stuff or their connection to that or their experience to that. Yeah. And I feel like, you know, that's, something that's so huge because if you don't talk about it then what happens uh silence kills um, yeah you hear, you hear people say this all the time we had no indication we had no idea he gave or she gave no hints but mm -hmm. here's the deal there eight out of ten people who are suicidal are ambivalent nine out of ten give hints in the last week leading up to an attempt which tells me eight or nine out of ten people want somebody to see something say something intervene stop that's the good news. And you can do that by doing something as simple as starting a conversation. Yeah. Cause you're right. You know, when you don't, when you don't do anything, you don't say anything that silence does kill. And yep. the fact that you, you know, tell me about what are the other, cause I know you said you've done five, five Ted talks, right? Five Ted talks. And the, the one of them you did, you covered chronic suicidal ideation, suicidal. And what, what are the other topics that you get into on the Ted talks? The second one was in Scarsdale, New York, very wealthy area, and it was done at a high school. And what they were trying to impress upon the high school students was that money's not everything. So, you know, doing what you love for a living and perhaps serving mankind is rewarding uh, as well. Um, Victor Frankl's, no, uh, Nietzsche said, what is a life of means without meaning? Mm -hmm. That was the theme of the talk. And I talked about the work that I did and how much it meant to me and meant to other people. You know, it's my purpose and my passion. It's my why. It gets me out of bed in the morning. The third one was mental with benefits, the evolutionary advantages of mental illness. Mm -hmm. Everybody I met who wasn't completely dysfunctional, that had a mental illness, has some kind of superpower, artistic, great writer, comedian, musician, athlete. Yeah. Now, can't be a coincidence. So I did a little research on evolution and it turns out a lot of things that way back eons ago, the cavemen and women, where survival skills then are now considered disability. Um, like, mm. a, like bipolar disorder. Uh, back in the day, anthropologists think everybody was bipolar because they had four months in the summer to gather enough stuff for eight months in the winter. So man, they had to go at it. They just had to be manic, you know, hunters and gatherers. And to hyper get that done. Yeah, to get that done. Yeah. And now you got this four, now you got eight months worth of stuff need somebody to organize it. So who better than somebody with OCD who is compulsively organized? And so the, the like <laughs> chapter and verse, everything we think of as a disability at this point had served some purpose 
way back when, and it's just continued, you know, in the in the population uh, to this day, and it's become become disability. But the point of the the TEDx was was for children. What if those of us living with a genetic, I'm sorry, with mental illness, are not living with a genetic mutation, but an amazing evolutionary adaptation? Mm. What if we could convince a child, yeah, you have this mental illness, but here's what they never tell you. You have mental ableness your peers can't touch. <laughs> and so we wrap our arms around, we energize, we celebrate whatever their mental ableness is. Uh, to the point, by the way, three weeks ago on 60 Minutes, I did that talk in 2018. 2020 on 60 Minutes, 30 Fortune 500 companies are now hiring people on the autism spectrum for their special abilities and paying them handsomely. Again, wow. mental ability. I think mental illness is simply a combination of mental illness and mental ableness. I believe my depression, suicide thoughts are just the flip side of my creativity, imagination, comic ability, because it's just the way my brain works. Yeah. And that's some, I love how you bring that up and, you know, noticing that a lot of people who have mental illness have, you know, are very creative and very and innovative and different and have kind of like a more artistic approach to certain things. Cause I've noticed that as well. Cause I know when you brought up that, the bipolar thing, that's cause I'm bipolar. So I know I noticed that too. And it's like, when you bring that up and I like how, you know, you, you know, getting into these Ted talks, because I feel like, are you, are you planning on doing any more in the future? Oh yeah, I got three of them right now, and uh, I, I I submit all the time. I, I submit them, uh, you know, submit number one, then number two, and then number three, then go back to number one. Uh, one of them is called depressive realism. There is some scientific evidence that people who are depressed see the world more clearly than people who are neurotypical. Mm. Um, there's something called negative cognitive bias that people who are depressed have. But there's also something called positive cognitive bias, where you sort of you, you think the upside is going to be farther up than it actually is. Mm. That's one of them. Um, the, there's one on, uh, actually there's one on my, my trip back from Cambodia at the beginning of the pandemic where I got in big trouble because um, everybody thought I came back dragging the virus. <laughs> That's uh, going viral, how the corona, coronavirus and cancel culture killed my comedy career. Oh, and the, uh, the fifth one is my personal favorite, mental health and the orgasm. Preacher depression uh... single-handedly. <laughs> I love that. I love that you've, so you, so you said you've, you've done, you've, you've done five so far and yep. those are the three that you are going to be doing, right? Those three. Well, and the, the, uh, middle health, the orgasm I did in Durango, Colorado. Oh, you did. When? Yeah. Uh, November. <clears throat> well, Oh, this month, November. A year ago, November. Okay. But Ted.com has the final say on what goes up on YouTube and they refuse to put it up. Oh, they would tell oh. me why. And I said, "Look, just edit any way you like," <laughs> and they wouldn't. So I'm I'm pitching it again. Yeah, hoping that whoever looks at it at Ted next time won't be the same person, and they won't take umbrage of whatever it was I said. And <laughs> so that's actually a, will be a repeat. It was it was like I thought about advertising it. The Ted Talk goes too controversial to post. Oh yeah. That is, that is really funny that you say that because, you know, especially putting that out there, but that's great that you're going to continue to, you know, push to have it out there and to, to really put that out there. Cause I think that's, that's great. So it's the only one I've ever gotten standing ovation for. It was hysterical because it's kind of a combination of comedy and science. And yeah, my favorite joke is my wife hated and told me to take out was I'm talking about, you know, masturbation orgasm and not that palliative <laughs> effects, what it does for your body. 
you know, reduces cortisol and, and uh, you know, and, yeah. and raises the, whatever it is, the love hormone. I can't think of the love hormone. And DHEA. And oxytocin or? Oxytocin, yeah. It yeah. jacks up your oxytocin. Anyway, about halfway through, I look at the audience and I said to them, um, you guys know why they call an orgasm an orgasm? And they're looking at me and I go, because nobody gets felt. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh, I can't. <laughs> and I said to the audience, oh, thank God you like that. My wife hated it. <laughs> Frank. Oh my goodness. I love it. I love it. Well, thank you. You know, I just wanted to thank you for, you know, taking the time out of your day to have this conversation and to really share the work that you've done and the work that you're still working on for mental health, for giving these talks on suicide, suicide prevention, talking about chronic suicidal ideation and sharing your story and talking about, you know, your experiences, where you've been, what you've gone through, what you've learned from it. I think it's awesome. I think it's great. And, you know, it's always good talking to you and getting to virtually sit down with you and just chat with you. So, and I've got 12, coaching clients for TEDx. I've got another dozen that have all done one. One young woman's done two. Mm -hmm. And they all have an idea worth spreading. A number of them are on mental health topics. A young woman who got her first one she ever applied for. She applied for six. Wow. First one she'd applied to uh, took her. And she came within uh, you know, a quarter of an inch of slicing her own throat and survived that. And so she's talking, she's speaking on that. And I've got another guy speaking on something called individuation. Have you ever heard of individuation? Individuation. I've heard that word, but what is it? Yeah, Tell I don't me. feel bad. I've never even heard it. Uh, it's sort of like a midlife crisis is the, in that you, well, the title of his talk that he came up with was, what if who you are is not really who you are? You've been living your life to, to meet everybody else's expectations at this point. You know, mm -hmm. if you're... Your dad was a doctor, mom was a doctor, you know, the pressure's on to be a doctor. But you really don't want a doctor. And at some point, you know, a lot of people would just go alone. No, I'm no, no, I'm done. And <laughs> it varies from the mid-20s to the, you know, to who knows how old. And he, in fact, at 40, decided he was a banker, very successful. But he, you know, he's thinking, I'm not, I wouldn't cut out to be a banker. <laughs> uh, he's now a coach and a trainer and a speaker, which is what he really wanted to do. Yeah. And, wow. And he's and they said he said, look, here's the deal. When you make a change like that, if you've been meeting everybody else's expectations and you pull that, there's gonna be collateral damage. His wife left him, his mother didn't speak to him for the day she died. Wow. But he's happier, you know, with with the change, uh, happy as he's ever been. So he's, he's happy. About, he's gonna talk about so that's the that's the that's the beauty and the um, joy of, of coaching Ted X. Yeah. Individuation. That's awesome. That that's going to be a good one. Well, yeah, I mean, that's awesome. And thank, you know what, Frank, thank you. Thank you once again for coming out <laughs> and chatting with me and really talking about all this stuff. Cause I know, you know, it's, it's not always easy to get into this, but I think it's so important. I think it's so awesome that you do that. And that the fact that you have you know, help people out. You've had people come up to you. You've had people reach out to you and just share with, share the value they gotten, they've gotten out of hearing you speak. So I think that's great. And that is, that's so beautiful to me. So. And humor makes it easier to swallow. 
Oh yeah, of course. Yes, it does always. All right, guys. Well, everyone listening, whether it is the daytime, nighttime, I hope that you guys have a great rest of your day or night. And on that note, we are going to end this episode. So goodbye, guys. And goodbye, Frank. All right, guys, that is the end of this episode. I hope you enjoyed this one as much as I enjoyed creating it. As always, if you guys would like to get in touch with me to talk about becoming a guest or to share your thoughts on this episode with me, you can do that in a number of ways. You can shoot me an email to crookedillness at gmail.com. You can send me a DM on Instagram at crookedillness, or you can message me on my Facebook page at crookedillness as well. I hope you guys have a beautiful rest of your day and thank you so much for listening to Crooked Illness.